And I, you know, I, I really wish that y'all could do um, this whole preaching thing week in, week out for just a couple of months. And so I, I think if, if you could do that for just a, a brief amount of time, you would know how strange of a job this is. I, I think you would get that really quickly. And you know, one of the things that, that really, it, it kind of cracks me up when I think about preaching and pastors who preach um, week in, week out, same group of people, is I think it becomes really easy to complicate the issue. And, and to make it a lot more complicated than it really is. And, and so here's maybe an illustration of that. Like if we were going to decide what is it that we're going to preach at Stonegate? Like what is it that we're going to go after? What are we going to preach? What do we need to do here? Um, I, I think there's one or two ways that, that we could go about deciding that here. here. Here would be angle number one. And by the way, probably the most common angle. Um, this angle would say, um, okay, so let's think about our Stonegate people. Um, I think we've got parenting issues. We've got parenting problems. Okay, so if that's the problem, um, then let's do uh, a parenting series. We'll, we'll do one called Parental Problems. And so week one will be parental problems, right? So we'll outline the, the parental problems that we've got. Week two will be uh, parental production. I mean, all these P's are just kind of flowing together now, right? So now we've got the parental production going. So we're going to talk about how God fashions and forms parents. Then week three, we might do parental pastors and talk about how, as a mom and a dad, you're a pastor in your house. Um, week four, we might do parental pattern. I'm, I don't know. We'll find another P, right? And so now, now here's what just happened there. In that, here's what I've just done. I've said, okay, I've got a message that I want to make sure our people hear. Now, that isn't all bad. I mean, there can be good in that, and there's sometimes it's very appropriate to do that. But but here's the danger when when this is the consistent diet that we would get at Stonegate. Here's the danger in it. Here's the next step. Okay, so we've got parental problems. We've got to find four passages now that deal with parental problems. So now we need a parental patterns passage. We need a parental problem passage, a parental pastors pass. We've got all these passages now we've got to find. So now I'm here's the, the flow of thought here. I've got my message and I've got to go try to find a text now that gets across my message. Okay, now, now here's how this goes down. Um, it's very easy. And this is the danger in it. It's really easy when this is our mindset to start kind of fitting these round pegs in square holes. For instance, have you ever heard the parable of the prodigal son preached on parenting? The problem is, it's a round peg in the square hole. It's got nothing to do with parenting. Luke 15, parable of the prodigal son, is everything to do with how God deals with religious people and how he deals with irreligious people. That's what he, uh, Luke 15, that's what it's talking about. It has nothing to do with, with a dad and how I discipline. It has nothing to do with me kind of letting the kid go and he's going to come to his senses and he's going to come back. It has nothing to do with parenting, right? It is how God deals with religious and irreligious. So, so here's what just happened when I preached parenting out of Luke 15. I have just made my message, like I, I've given you my message at the cost of the Bible's message. That's what just happened there. Okay, now, now this is angle two. Maybe a different way we could do this. Is we could say, um, we're going to start opening up the Bible and we're going to roll through books of the Bible with this as our goal. I'm not going to try to manufacture a message for you. I'm not going to try to create one for you. I'm going to try to say this. Here's the Bible, Ephesians. This is what the first chapter says. This is what the second chapter says. This is what the third chapter says. So now it's not me trying to give you my message. 
It's me, and this is the job of a preacher. Preaching is opening up the Bible and saying, this is what it's saying. It's not what I'm saying, it's what that book's saying. And so it's really easy to complicate that in the middle of it. I mean, preaching is a really crazy thing. Um, Like, I love to listen to sermons. And I'm amazed at how many round pegs get shoved in square holes, right? Okay, so this is why I love preaching through books of the Bible primarily. It's because when we do that in, in a situation like this to the same people over and over, here's how you get to benefit from that. You instantly start to see themes that unite and tie the Bible together. And if it's a theme that unites and ties together, then here's what's going to happen. It's going to be on most of the pages of Scripture. Like when we read through Ephesians, it's going to be in Ephesians consistently because it's a theme in the Scriptures. It's something that ties the Scriptures, that binds the Scriptures together. Okay, so so I make like no, uh, I don't try to pretend when I say this. I preach the same message over and over and over again. I don't have five messages. I've got one message. It's the glory of God and the gospel. That's it. That's all I can preach. Now, we can do that in a lot of different ways from a lot of different perspectives, but that is the only message we hear here. And here's why. Because as we open up the Bible and we look at um, Romans 3 and we look at Ephesians, the problem is that's what they say. That's why, that, that's why we say them. And so if it ever feels like we're on repeat, it's because the Bible is on repeat. And the Bible's on repeat because we need it to be on repeat. Okay, so this is what I mean. Look look in Ephesians chapter 2 with me. This is the goal. And and this is like this whole repeat idea. It is a theme, the gospel and the glory of God. It's a theme that unites the Bible together. And and so we're going to see this really clearly as we get into Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 11, that the gospel is about to come right to the surface again. And here's the job for this morning. Here's what faithful preaching looks like and tries to accomplish this morning. Is it tries to help you remember the gospel. That's what it's trying to do. That, that, that is the aim of this morning, is to try to throw images, pictures, th- these words out here for you today to help the gospel lodge in your heart, to help it stay in the front of your mind, to help it stay before your eyes. That's the goal. And it's not the goal because I want to manufacture that. It's the goal because that's what Ephesians 2, 11 through 22 is trying to do for you. Okay, so look at this here in, in uh, verse 11. First word in verse 11 is what? Therefore. So that therefore is a direct link back to the first 10 verses in chapter 2. Now, if you were here a couple of, uh, of weeks ago, here's what you um, walked through with us in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. It's a really flattering um, set of passages, right? It starts in Ephesians 1, 1 and says you are dead in your sin. Pretty flattering, huh? You're dead. Like you're spiritually lifeless. Picture somebody that's that's dead, no response, no feeling. They don't make a move. They're dead. That's what we are spiritually. It goes on to say in verse 2 that not only are we dead, but we're also enslaved to sin. We're following the course of this world. We're following the prince of the power of the air. We're following that stuff. So it's not just that we're dead in sin. There's an active rebellion. We're actively pursuing sin. So we're dead in our sin, we're enslaved to sin, and then in verse 3 it's going to say we're condemned in sin. It's going to say that we are by nature children of wrath. I mean, I don't know how much more flattering it could get, right? That we're dead, enslaved, and condemned in our sin. Here's the first thing the gospel will always tell people. 
that you are more sinful than you dare dream. That's the first message of the gospel. That you are more sinful than you can ever imagine. That you could dare dream. Okay, but here's the good news of the gospel. Look at verse 4 in chapter 2, verse 4. It's going to say, but God. Here comes this contrast. We are this, but God. He comes along and he is the actor here. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Look at verse 5 there. Right? Okay, you've got this picture of God making us alive in verse 5. So we are dead, but now because God loves us, he makes us alive. So the gospel always starts with, and these are the bookends to our lives. The gospel starts with, you are more sinful than you dare dream. But the gospel comes along and says, here's the beauty of it, the good news of it, is that you are more loved than you could dare dream. Those are the bookends of the gospel. The first one slays our pride, that we have nothing to be prideful about. We are sinful people. We have nothing to be prideful about. But on the other end, it, it comes along and says, we don't have to despair. I, we don't have to be hopeless because we are loved by Christ who saves and redeems out of our slavery, out of our condemnation. So, so this is the bookends in the gospel. So in, in verse 11, the first word he says is, therefore, a direct link back to 1 through 10. You're dead in your sin, enslaved, condemned, but God has made alive. The gospel. So so it's a direct link back to the gospel. Now here's what he's about to tell us to do. Second word in verse 11. Therefore what? Remember, this is the goal of today. Is to make sure we are remembering the gospel. Look at the, the first word in verse 12. Remember. This is the point. Is that we remember the gospel. That we don't forget it. That it is always before our eyes. That it's always in front of us. That we wake up today and we think gospel first. That we wake up tomorrow and we are thinking about the gospel. That we live this week and the gospel is before us. That's the point. That's what he's trying to do here. Paul is saying, this is your command. This is the first imperative in the book of Ephesians. The first command. Isn't that interesting? In the first three chapters, there are no commands other than this one. Everything else in the first three chapters is this. This is what God has done. You are this. Now this is what God has done. This is the one command in three chapters. You remember that. That's your command. You remember that. You don't forget that. And Okay, now here's our problem. We all have slippery memories, right? I mean, it is like wet concrete. One brush over it, one new thing, and we have forgotten, right? I mean, we all have amnesia periodically and and so this is our problem so this is what paul is coming along and saying in this passage he's going to say listen you can forget everything else in life but you cannot forget the gospel okay now here's what he's about to do in 11 through 22 he's going to give us three broad things that we cannot forget when we think gospel he's going to retell the gospel to us here and he's going to tell us three things that you can forget all else but you cannot forget these three things You cannot live life without these three things being on your frontal lobe. Okay, so here they are. And by the way, as he he takes this turn into verse 11, there is a shift in emphasis. 1 through 10 is a personal emphasis where you, fill in your name, are dead in sin. Where you, Rodney, you are dead in sin. You get to verse 11 and the emphasis shifts just a little bit. Now it's not you personal, it is you corporately. It is you Gentiles, this group of people. Now it's you remember what you were. Now it's you remember on on this group level. 
So corporate emphasis here. Okay, so he's going to give us three things. Here's the first thing he's going to say. You need to make sure you remember this. First one goes like this. What you once were. You need to remember what you once were. If the greatest thing in the world is to be saved, do you know what the worst thing in the world is to be? Apart from Christ. Do you remember what you once were? You know, the, the problem with being a Christian for a long period of time, this is, there, there's several problems that creep along the longer you become a Christian. But, but here's one of the main ones. A, a lot of the other problems are derived from this one. Is the longer that you live as a Christian, the more likely it is that you'll forget that you were once Christless. So do you remember that? Do you remember what you once were? I mean, is that a distant memory to you? Or does that live in your brain as a vivid picture? As soon as you lose the vivid picture, you have lost everything. So in verse 12, he gives us five things to jog our memories here. Five things to say, this is what you once were. Let me jog the memory and help make this into something that's real, that's vivid, that's weighty for you. And here's the problem. And I'll just go ahead and confess this up front. Words cannot convey the weight of what we once were. They, they can't do it. Okay, so, so here's what he says about it. Look at verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope. And without God in the world, this is what you once were. These five things. Number one, he says this, you were separated from Christ. Now, okay, again, I can't, I can't just throw words out there that make that real to you. I, I can't do that. I can't throw words out that convey the weight of you are separated from Christ. That's what you were. I, I can't. Do, so flip back to Ephesians chapter one. And maybe I can give you a contrast here of what we have in Christ. So, so look at all these things that flow from being in Christ in Ephesians chapter 1. Start in verse 1 here. In Christ, it says we are faithful in Christ Jesus. If you're faithful to Christ in this room, it is only because Christ is in you. That's it. We are faithful in Christ Jesus, verse 1. Verse 2, we have grace and peace because of Christ. Verse 3, we have every spiritual blessing in 1-3 because we are in Christ. That's it. So every blessing that you receive, it is only because you're in Christ that you receive it. Verse 4, we are chosen. Where? In Christ is where you're chosen. Verse 5, we are predestined for adoption. Where? In Christ we're predestined for adoption. In verse 5. In verse 6, we have been blessed with grace because we are in Christ. In verse 7, we have redemption because we are in Christ. In verse 8, we are lavished with His grace. In verse 9 and 10, we have been united to God in Christ. In verse 11, we have an inheritance in Christ. In verse 13, we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit because we are in Christ. In verse 14, we have the security of being sealed with the Holy Spirit because we are in Christ. In verse uh, 18, we have hope and riches because we are in Christ. In verse 19, we have power because we are in Christ. Now, now here's the reverse of that. Now, will you just ponder this for just a second? If that is what we have in Christ, apart from Christ, you have none of it. You have no blessing apart from Christ. You have no hope apart from Christ. You have no grace apart from Christ. You have no redemption 
apart from Christ. You have no faithfulness apart from Christ. You have no peace apart from Christ. You have no inheritance apart from Christ. You have no security apart from Christ. You are not sealed apart from Christ. Being in Christ is everything. And he's saying, this is what you once were. You were apart from Christ. You had none of the benefits that flow from being in Christ. So do you remember that? That you were once Christless. Is that a distant memory? Paul's saying, listen, it cannot remain a distant memory. That needs to be front and center, separated. Okay, then he goes on to say this. You were alienated from the, from the people of Christ. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Alienated from the people of Christ. Isn't it, a, isn't it interesting just to, to look at how you function when a person comes up to you and says, hey, I've got a secret to tell you. Isn't it an interesting thing what instantly happens? Like your mind is kind of in just a hazy daze, right? And instantly when somebody says, I've got a secret to tell you, and especially if you think it's a good secret, your mind instantly clears up. It is instantly engaged, right? Because we all want to be on the end. We all want to have the inside information. Take it back to like the third grade playground. Is there anything worse than being that guy? The team has just been picked, right? And you're still over here. Is there anything worse than that? That that you're on the outside of the group of the crowd? Like they're there and it's not like you plural over here. It's you singular over here. Like they have the group. You have yourself. There is nothing worse than that, right? And, And here's what Paul is saying. Apart from Christ, you are separated. Apart from Christ, you are not accepted. Apart from Christ, you are rejected. Apart from Christ, you are an alien. Apart from Christ, you are separated. Do you remember what you once were? Separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, from the people of God. And then look what he goes on to say. Not only that, but you were strangers to the promise of Christ. And that word promise is singular. And here is a massively important verse. If you write this down, you can go back and look at it later. 2 Corinthians 1.20 is one of the most important passages, one of the most important verses in the Bible. And here, here's what it's going to say in essence. That all the promises that God makes to you, every promise God makes to you. Think of, of the plethora of promises there are in the Bible. The beautiful promises that make up the Bible. Think about all those. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says this. All of those promises find their yes to you in Christ. Every scriptural promise made to you is only good in Christ. So here's what that means. Romans 8.28 All things work for the good of those. Okay, let's stop there. Beautiful promise, wouldn't we say? All things work for the good of those means that everything that happens in our life is grace from God. Tragedy is grace from God. Cancer is even grace from God. Loss is grace from God. Everything that happens is grace from God. That's what that that verse means. But look at me here. That is only for those who are in Christ. Romans 8.28 does not apply to those who are not in Christ. That promise finds its fulfillment in Jesus. That's where it is. Now now finish that verse. 
all things work to the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. If you are not in Christ, things do not work for your good. That, that is not how the end of the road plays out. Things work for your demise, not for your good. In Christ, they work for your good. And if you're in Christ, we can hang on to that promise for the rest of our life, regardless of what life deals us. Okay, how how about at the end of Romans 8, where it's going to say that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. That only happens, that promise only happens when we are in Christ. Apart from Christ, your sin has separated you from the love of Christ, right? So, So do you remember that? Do you remember what it's like to have no promise? There's not one promise that you can hang on to. There is not one biblical promise that you can look at and say, that is mine. Apart from Christ, we have none. Paul's saying, listen, you need to remember that. That is what you once were. You were strangers, you were aliens, and you had no promise to hold on to. And that leads right into the next one. Paul says that you're hopeless. Apart from Christ, you were hopeless. Hope. Hope is a benefit and it is a result of the promises of Christ. The promises of Christ produce hope. The promises of Christ allow us to to worship at a funeral. That's what the promises of Christ do for us. Apart from the promises of Christ, here is all you have. You have optimism. And optimism at its best is just wishful thinking, right? I mean, picture yourself on the Titanic as an optimist. There's water. It's coming in. Isn't that pretty? That's beautiful water. We're on a big boat. Surely it's not going to sink. I, I mean, optimism says, surely the water's not going to be cold even if it does sink. You hit an iceberg. It's going to be cold, right? And, and so optimism, listen to me, optimism is all you have apart from Christ. And when you're on a sinking ship, optimism does not save. Optimism is based on a good feeling. Hope is based on secure promises in Christ. And here's what Paul's saying. Apart from Christ, this is what you once were. You were hopeless. There was nothing for you to have hope in. There's nothing there. Okay, then he's going to finish it up and say you were godless. So not only were you hopeless, but you were godless. Here's one of my favorite passages in the Bible out of Jeremiah 31, where God looks at his covenant people and he says this about them. He says, I'm going to make a new covenant with you. This is what I'm going to do for my people. I'm going to make a new covenant with you. I'm going to write my law in their hearts. I'm going to place it in their hearts. And this is what he says. When I do that, I will be their God. They will be my people. In Christ, we have God. Because Christ purchased God for us. So we are not godless in Christ. We have a God. But here's what Paul's saying. There was a day when you had no God. So so what do we do when we have no God? We'll we'll turn and and we'll make little G gods out of everything around us. We'll make a little G God out of our family. We'll make one out of our husband, out of our hobbies, out of our wife, out of our kids. We'll make it out of a million things. And Paul's saying, listen, apart from Christ, that's as good of a God as you have. So let me ask you this question. Do you remember that? Do you remember what you once were? more sinful than you could dare dream. And he's just going to roll it out here. You're separated from Christ. You're aliens to the commonwealth of, of Israel. You're strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope without God. That is what you once were. 
Okay, now the news gets better here. So we remember that, though. That we need to make sure that is in our brain and not in the back of our brain, in the front of our brain. That's what he's saying. Okay, then he goes on and says, but you need to remember this too. There's more to remember. Here's the second thing. That we need to remember what Christ has done. So it's not just what we once were, but it's what Christ has done on our behalf. What Christ has done. Okay, so, so look at verse 13. This is where we're going to pick it up here. But now, okay, now you remember in, in verses one through three, he, Paul gives the, this is your condition as a sinful man. In verse four, he says, but God, it's the contrast, but's the contrast. And now the actor in verse four is God. He's going to do the same thing in verse 13. He has just laid out what we are apart from Christ. And then he comes in in verse 13 and he says, but now here's the contrast. You were that, but you're about to be something completely different. You were this, but all of that is about to change. And it's going to change because of Christ. But now in Christ, he is the actor. What Christ did is a one-man show. It's not our doing. What Christ accomplished is his work. That's who did it. He is the actor. We are the recipients. And so Paul is saying this. You need to remember not just what you were, but what Christ has done. You need to remember that. Okay, so he's going to lay out a couple of things to remember. First thing, he's going to say this. You need to remember that Christ has brought you near. Look at verse 13, how it finishes there. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off, aliens, strangers, separated from Christ, you were far off. You, what you once were, remember that. That now you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. God is the actor. He is the one that brings us near. We are actively running from him. And God, in his grace, hunts us down. We are hiding behind every tree we can find. And in his grace, he pursues. And eventually, if you're in Christ, he has found you. You didn't find him. He found you hiding. He has found you and he has placed his grace and favor on you. And he has redeemed you. But now in Christ, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And he gives two things here on how we're brought near. Number one, we're brought near by the blood of Christ. So it is Christ's work on the cross. He died as our sinless substitute. Isn't that beautiful? That on the cross, God treated Jesus like he was you and I. He took the penalty that you and I deserve. So we are brought near by his blood. But listen to this now, because this is Bible Belt Misconception 101 right here. Is Christ can be the Savior and not be your Savior. He can be the Redeemer and not be your Redeemer. And and so it's not just by his blood, this first phrase, but now in Christ. We are brought near in Christ. That's how this thing works itself out. He is not your redeemer until you are in him. And we are in him when we place our faith in him. That's what makes us in him. We place our faith in Christ. Now we have been brought near in him. Okay, so faith in Christ is trusting in and treasuring Jesus. Trust and treasure. Now I I am amazed at how many people think they are saved by God when he is not treasured. I'm amazed at that. Trusting and treasuring. It's not just a belief in fact. It's prizing those things. Submitting your lives to those things. 
Okay, so that's how we're brought near. Okay, now he's going to say that Christ has done something else. So not only is he brought near, but he has also done this. Christ has broken down the wall of hostility. That is what Christ has done. Look at verse 14. He is our peace. He has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. That is what Christ has done on our behalf. Okay, now we've got to do some work here because there's some background information that we need to get this. Okay, we're going to start in Genesis 1 and 2 here. When God creates, and we're going to talk about hostility in in two ways. Hostility cuts two ways in the scriptures. One, there is a hostility between us and God. Okay, so you've got a vertical hostility and there's a horizontal hostility. There is a hostility between us and men. Okay, so we're going to take the us and men piece of this first. Go back to Genesis 3 and here's what you find. That God created everything and it is good. When God created, it is under a unified theme. It is under a declaration of unity. God has created us and we are his image bearers. That's how that works itself out. Okay, so God creates and then this happens. Adam and Eve sin. And when they sin, it fractured all unity. Okay, now track this with me here. Here's how this plays itself out. Two things fracture the unity. Number one, shame, and number two, blame. Okay, so here's how the story goes in Genesis 2, 3. Um, God comes to them after they've sinned, and they're hiding from God. He starts calling out, and they're hiding from him. And not only are they hiding from God, they are hiding from each other. What do they do? They, they cover themselves with fig leaves. Do you know that there's a theology behind why you wear clothes? Do you know that? Do you know why we all have clothes on this morning? We didn't wear clothes before the fall. Before Genesis 3, none of us were wearing clothes. Here's the reason you put on your polo this morning. Sin is the reason. And sin brings shame that you want to cover. And I want to cover. It's a, clothes are a universal indictment that we are sinful people and shamed because of our sin. That's why we wear clothes. Adam and Eve were naked before that, Right? We would still be naked had we never have sinned. And it would be okay. We go naked in here now, we are all feeling really awkward. That's what's happening, right? (laughs) Clothes are a universal indictment of our sinfulness. So they hide themselves from each other. And listen, that hiding, that shame creates all this strife as you read forward. Okay, now you got the shame piece and you got the blame piece, right? God comes to Adam and he says, what, what, what happened? You ate the fruit. Okay, what? And God's not asking a question like, tell me the good. As a good dad, he is drawing it out from his son. What happened? So Adam, and by the way, men in this room, Eve ate the fruit first. But notice who the question went to. The man. Just like God's first question to your family goes to you. So God comes to Adam. What happened? And Adam did what any good blame-oriented man would do, right? She did it. It's her fault. I mean, don't be looking at me. I mean, what's the problem here, right? That's what any good man would do and and puts the blame on his wife. Okay, now that blame and that shame wreak havoc for the rest of scriptures. Now you start reading forward and you're going to see it play out. I mean, two chapters later, a couple chapters later, you've got um, Cain killing Abel. I mean, you've got war, strife. All of these crazy things play out all the way to Ephesians. And this is what happens by the time you get to the New Testament. You have got a serious division between Jew and Gentile. Now look at verse 11 and you start to see some of that. This Jew-Gentile hatred. Okay, in verse 11, um, 
Paul's saying, listen, you need to remember that you Gentiles. And then he goes on to explain how a Jew would feel about a Gentile. He says this, you Gentiles, this is what you are. You're called the uncircumcision by what's called the circumcision. Now, okay, to bring that into 21st century language, it would be like us calling the French cowards, right? It, it's a cut down. It would be like somebody calling your mama ugly. You don't like that, right? She doesn't like, nobody likes that, right? Okay, that's what just happened in, in Ephesians 2.11. That that's a derogatory statement. It is a, let me, let me cut them down here. Let me throw some trash their way. That, that's what they just did there. Okay, now you can see this play out. There is a serious hatred in the New Testament between Jews and Gentiles. Now, now this is how deep this hatred went. William Barclay says this about this, this hatred. He says, and this is going to be up on the screen for you. He said, the Jews had an immense contempt for the Gentile. The Gentiles said the Jews were created by God to be fuel for the fires of hell. That's how deep the hatred goes. God, they said, loves only Israel out of all the nations that he has made. It was not even lawful. So it's not just if you want to, it's not even lawful, right? To render help to a Gentile mother in her hour of sorest need, a.k.a. labor and delivery. I would agree. That's the hour of sorest need apart from an epidural, right? They were not allowed by law to give help there. For that would simply be to bring another Gentile into the world. Until Christ came, the Gentiles were an object of contempt to the Jews. The barrier between them was absolute. If a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl, the funeral of that Jewish boy was carried out. Such contact with a Gentile was the equivalent of death. That is how they felt about one another. That is the contempt that sin, blame, shame, that's the sort of division that it creates in people. Now you saw this in the temple structure too. Here's how the temple in Israel was built. In the inner court, you had kind of the court of the priest where the, the priest could go, they would do their, their sacrifices, all that. That was just meant for the, for the priest. Outside of that little wider one here, now we've got another court. It is for the Jewish men. They can come, they can socialize, they can do their thing in this next court for the Jewish, or for the Jewish men, the, the court of Israel. You come up, out from that, you have the court of the women. So now you've got this next court all on the same level. This is where your Jewish women would socialize. They would do their thing in that court. Now, you walk down five steps, platform. Walk down 14 more steps, platform with a wall, four feet tall. On that wall, where it read this inscription. And by the way, that wall is what separated where a Gentile could go from where a Jew could go. That wall was a dividing wall. Gentile could not go there, right? This was, this was the inscription found on that wall. No foreigner may enter within the barrier and enclosure around the temple. This wall. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. That's the contempt. That's the hatred built into Jew-Gentile. That, that's what's going on here. It would be like me going to the Rangers game today and me buying a ticket. And they say, now, now what's your name? Where are you from? Well, I'm from Midlothian. Oh, from there. What's your last? Hobbs. Ooh. And, okay, you can buy this ticket. They, they hand me the ticket and I look down and it has parking lot C on it. And I look down at the ticket and I say, um, I, I can't see the game from parking lot C, 
And she says, yeah, I know. That, that's the point. My kids can't see the game from parking lot C. Yeah, I know, because we don't want your kids in here. I might as well stay home if I have to sit in parking lot C. Exactly. That's what we want. That's the picture. Okay, now listen to this. And the Jews were right. They were God's chosen people. Not to separate themselves, to put a law up and to put a dividing wall up. They were God's chosen people to bless the nations. And now sin has created this hostility. Okay, now look, everybody look at me right here. That same prejudice is in you. That same prejudice is deep within your heart as well. Deep within my heart as well. Why? Because we've all sinned and we've all got shame and blame that follow it. And if we can't see it, it's only because we're blind. And you say, no, I hate prejudice. Exactly. Right? You are what you hate. Okay, now let me try to help this make sense here. When you think about your righteousness, how you look at your own personal righteousness, what you depend on, what you look to for your righteousness before God. Here's what that means. What, what you think God looks down upon you with and says, you know what, I'm so proud of that in him. I just love that in him. What you think God looks down at and smiles at in you, whatever that is, what you look to for your righteousness before God determines how you look at other people. Jew, Gentile, here's how the Jews function. We're Jews. We're the chosen one. Now, I don't know who these pagans are, but they deserve to die. Now, now we don't use Jew, Gentile for that, but we have a lot of, we have a lot of ways of getting about that too. How about morality? I can't believe they would drink that. Do that. Live like that. How about our money? I just know that God is so proud of how successful I am. Those guys? Come on. How about our manners and customs? They act like that? Did, did nobody, like, did a mama not tell them and whip them when they were like three to make sure they didn't do that? I mean, did they not learn that when you chew gum, you don't pop it every other chew, right? I mean, whatever your deal is. How about our ethnicity? We're the right color, they're the wrong one. And have you ever noticed that, that most people think that they're the right one? I mean, we could go on for days here. But we have our same way of, of making ourselves feel superior to other people. We have our own way of thinking that God is more pleased with us because of what we bring to the table. And here's what God is saying in Ephesians 2. You bring nothing to God's table that makes him proud. Whatever, whatever badge you wear that makes you think God is proud of you, if that is anything other than Christ, you are fooled. He strips us from every other badge. So there is no badge. There is no morality badge that makes God more pleased with you. There is no manner and customs badge. There is no money badge. There is no um, you smell better than that person badge. There is none of that. And this is what God is saying in here. He's saying that I have broken down the dividing wall of hostility between men. I have broken it. 
And this is how he states it positively. He says, I have created in himself, Jesus, I've created one new man in place of the two. So whatever you think you feel superior about, whatever makes you think you're a little bit better, a little more savvy, a little smarter, look a little better, have a little better customs, a little better background, whatever you think makes God more proud of you is all leveled at the cross. Because the cross says we are more sinful than we could ever imagine. That's what it says. So he has leveled every sense of superiority. He has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility between men. And then he says between, not just between men, but between God and men. Okay, in Genesis 3, here's the picture. It's not just that men and women are angry at each other. It is that men and God are angry at each other. When we sin, it had vertical consequences. Okay, now look at, you don't have to flip it. I think it's going to be on the screen for you. I want you to read this passage with me. At the end of Genesis 3, God is not happy with sinners. Know that. God is hostile. This is why in Ephesians uh, 2, 3, he says, you are by nature children of wrath. Okay, look at what he says here at the end of Genesis 3. He says this, therefore the Lord God sent him out. From the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he, is, he was taken. Verse 24. He drove out the man. That is an active God working against you and I because God is angry at our sinfulness. There is hostility built there. He sent them out and he has driven them out. So he has driven them out the man at the east of the garden, uh, east of the Garden of Eden. And look at what he did. And he placed a cherubim, an angel there, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. God is so angry at sin, he kicks men and women out. He puts an angel there with a sword that's flaming to protect it. That you will not come back in. You will not get me. We are enemies. We are not friends. But here's the beauty. In Christ, the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down. Look at verse 16. That Christ might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. That Christ on the cross abolished all the hostility that that lies between us and God. All of it's gone. So now, no longer are are we strangers and aliens, but we have been brought near. No longer does an angel stand there with a flaming sword saying, I'll cut your head off if you come near me. Now he has a huge smile on his face as he says, welcome in. That's the picture. Last thing and we'll be done. So we remember what we once were. We remember what Christ has done. And then here's the last one. Is that we remember what we now are. But we now are. Look at verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. That was who you once were. You were that, and you remember that. But this is who you now are. But you are now fellow citizens with the saints. You are a citizen in the city of God. That's, who you, that's what you now are. We're strangers, now a citizen. Isn't that beautiful to think about that? That we have now been transferred under the good rule, under a good sovereign, under a good dad that is our king. That we have, through Christ, our citizenship has been purchased. Through Christ, our citizenship under the reign and rule of God is secure. Um, A few years ago, uh, Laura and I got the chance to, to go to Europe. 
It was our first time, my first time, never been. Um, we, we, I mean, it's a great deal. I mean, it's, it's incredible. But you really quickly get a sense of, I stick out here, right? I mean, I don't speak their language. They know things that I don't know. Their customs are different than our, I mean, it, it's a different deal. It is not home, right? Now, to make matters worse, um, about halfway through that trip, it feels like somebody stabbed me right in the side. My appendix is about to rupture in Europe. This is not a good day. I'm in a Swiss hospital about to get emergency surgery to remove an appendix on the day I'm supposed to be paragliding off to the Alps, right? This is not a good day. And so, uh, so they go in do emergency surgery. And I tell you, if, th- if there's anything more scary than being in a foreign country and not knowing what they're saying, it's being in a foreign hospital and not knowing what they're saying, right? And so, I mean, you get the look of panic every now and then. And you don't know what they're saying. Am I about to die? I mean, what's going on here? Tell me something. And so uh, I- I'll never forget. Uh, I mean, it was a long, after an appendix, a day and a half later, I get out of the hospital. We have a long train ride. I am puking every other second on that train ride. We finally get back to the United States of America. And I'll promise you, when we got back, I wanted to bow down and kiss the ground. Because it felt like home right? And there will be a day for us when all of this life that feels so foreign at times, when we get to step into our ultimate citizenship in heaven, that picture again, the the angel no longer has the sword. The angel has the huge smile saying, this is your home. Come on. You are a citizen in the city of God. Okay, he goes on to say, look what he goes on to say in verse 19. And members of the household of God. That you're a member in the house of God. Now, I'll tell you this. When I became a pastor, this was the freakiest moment that I had when I became a pastor. Is somebody called me Brother Rodney. I still haven't gotten over that, right? I mean, there's just something that's conjured up in me that doesn't feel right when somebody says Brother Rodney. But I'll tell you this. As weird as it makes me feel, it is a biblical idea. And we are all brothers and sisters in this room who are in Christ. Here's why. Because we have been adopted by the same dad. And so being adopted by the same dad means that we are part of his household. Now listen, he didn't say you're part of the hotel. Right? I mean, it's not a hotel. Now think about the difference between a hotel and a household. When you go to a hotel, what happens? You get served in a hotel, right? You go into a hotel, you sleep there, you take a shower, you do your towel thing. You've got all that stuff. You leave to take a walk. You come back, the bed's made. Towels are washed. New towels are there. There's even a little mint on your pillow, right? Now, unless you're a little bit different from me and your house is a little different than mine, I have never come back into my room with a little mint on my pillow, right? Here's why. Because a hotel is all about consumerism. You come to get. A house is all about commitment. I come to give my life away. And let me just throw a dart out here this morning as we kind of wrap this up. Some of you still think church is much more like a hotel. And it's not. It's a house. And in a house, people have roles. In a house, people have jobs. In a house, you stay in the house when you serve the house, right? You don't serve the house, you don't get the benefits of the house. And so this is just this dart here, this morning here. If Stonegate or any, and listen, I'm not making a plea for Stonegate for you. If this is not your church, it's okay. This isn't going to be everybody's church. But wherever you go, you need to be in the house. 
not the hotel. And you need to be giving your life away in the house. People came this morning because this is their house at 7.30 to set this place up. Last night, they came at midnight to clean up from a prom that went down right here. They were here till 2.30 last night because this is their house, not their hotel. There are 20 or 30 people serving our kids, serving our preschool guys this morning because this is their house. They're members of the house. So make sure you're a member of the house. Get your role, get your responsibility and serve. And then when you do that, you get the blessing of being in the house. And last one in here, what you already remember. He goes on and look at verse 22. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. Last one, you are a temple for the dwelling of God. Can I read verse 22 to you one more time and just look at that? In him, you also, Stonegate, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, everybody look up here at me. Don't let the wonder of that slip you. In the Old Testament, you had the tent, you had the tabernacle, and then eventually we got the temple. And Christ is saying now, God does not reside in a tent, tabernacle, or temple. You are it. God dwells in you. The presence of God is made known amongst the people of God. Now now listen to this statement. God makes his presence felt and known most amongst the people of God. So if you want to know the presence of God, if you want the spirit of God to dwell in you with power, you need to make sure you're in the corporate gathering of the people of God. You need to plug into home groups. You need to get plugged into community. You need to make sure you are opening your life up in such a way that the spirit of God will dwell in you with great power. Last thing and we'll, we'll be done. What if we don't remember? Okay, I heard what you preached. I heard what Paul's saying. What if we don't remember? Like, what if the gospel is just kind of on the back of our mind? What if the gospel is just kind of one of those things we remember sometimes? We'll see if we can. What, what if we don't remember the gospel? Were what Christ has done are. I want to let Ezekiel 16 speak this to us. I'm just going to read this passage. I want you to see what happens when we don't remember. It's going to be on the screen for you. Ezekiel 16, starting in verse 6, says this. And when I passed by you and saw you, wallowing in your blood graphic picture this is what we are apart from the gospel wallowing in our blood i said to you in your blood live i made you flourish like a plant of the field and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment your breasts were formed and your hair had grown yet you were naked and bare there is no room for prejudice Because we all in front of the cross are naked and bare, wallowing in our blood. Verse 8, when I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. And look at what God did. I made a vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord, and you became mine. You're now no longer wallowing in your blood, bare and naked. You are now my bride. And look at what Christ does for his bride in verse 9. Then I bathed you with water and washed 
uh, off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. Verse 10, I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. Verse 12. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus, you were adorned with gold and silver and clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. Verse 14. And your renown, this is what God does to us in the gospel. He not only finds us, but he marries us and clothes us. And look at what he does. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord. He finds us naked and bare, and he clothes us and makes us look perfect in him. And now watch what happens. Verse 15. But you trusted in your beauty and played, look at these vivid words, played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. Verse 16, you took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines and on them you played the whore. The like has never been nor shall ever be. And why did they run from God? After the gospel had gotten them, Why did they turn around and have a thousand other lovers other than their bride, other than their their husband? Here's why. Verse 22. And in all your abominations and your whorings, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, strangers and aliens, what you once were, wallowing in your blood. May we as the Stonegate family Remember well. Why? So we will live for the name and glory of our great king in a great way. Amen? Let's pray. The command is to remember. And and let me just throw this out for um, those of you who may be visiting with us today. And um, maybe you have never stepped across the line of faith. We are brought near by his blood in Christ. Faith in Christ. That's how we're brought near. Trusting and treasuring in Jesus. So if that, that needs to happen for you today, if you need peace with God, peace with God is found in Jesus. Faith in. Trusting and treasuring. So I'd invite you to mark on your guest card. The, uh, the box there that says how to establish a personal relationship with Jesus, we'll follow up with you this week. We'd love to sit down beside you and walk with you kind of through that process. For those of you who would claim today, I'm in Christ. I'm there. I am in Christ. Do you remember the gospel? Dads, let me ask you this question. How are you helping your family remember the gospel today, tomorrow, this week, next week? How are you helping them do that? I mean, what's your plan to make sure you don't forget? Spiritual amnesia, gospel forgetfulness is more damaging to your soul than any sickness you'll ever contract. How are you helping your family remember that? Do you remember what you once were, what Christ has done, and now what we are in Christ? It's a beautiful picture. I I pray that God would give us great grace in that that we would have great memories of the gospel. Lord, you are so good to us. And God, we, uh, we tell you that we want to be people who remember.
We want to be people who sing it, who, who preach it, who proclaim it. And, and you wrote Ephesians to the church. This is a message to the church to preach it, to love it, to depend on it, to cherish it, to, to lay your life down. It's like, God, I pray that you'd help us do that. God, help us be gospel-centered people that know and love, teach, proclaim your gospel. It's in your great name we pray.